the last part of chapter 1. And last week, as we looked at the book of Acts, we talked about what it really was to be a spirit-empowered witness. And we spoke of the importance of living our lives where we're walking in the power of the Spirit, that as we walk in the power of the Spirit, that should change the nature of our focus. It, it should lead us to, to be a witness for His gospel, and it should cause us to walk in hope. And as we live that out, as we become a, a Spirit-empowered people or a Spirit-empowered witness... The other part of that is then walking that out in unity with one another. And so, as we look at this particular book together, as we look at Acts and continue into Acts, and next week uh, Ben will be preaching from Acts chapter 2, the important piece is that this really shapes us together as, as one church. We're seeing the importance of the power of the Holy Spirit. We're seeing the importance of a, of a spirit-empowered unity that comes as we are living our lives devoted completely to Him. And so, with that understanding this morning, I, I just want us to go ahead and we're going to jump right into this text. Because the truth is, is that the unity of the Spirit, the unity of Christ's church, hinges on our understanding of who Christ is and his sovereignty over all things. So let's go ahead and stand together this morning as we read the scripture. We're going to be going from verse 12 all the way through verse 26. And this is what it says. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they'd entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The, the company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become des desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. And take the place in this ministry and apostleship for which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Lord God, as we come before you looking at your word this morning, 
Father, may our hearts be settled. May they be settled with a confidence knowing that you truly are Lord. Lord, for those who may not know you, that are hearing your truth for the first time or wrestling with your truth, I pray, Father, that you would open eyes to your truth. For each that are present today, may our hearts be completely open to you. And Father, this morning, may we put, God, the burdens, the concerns, the worries, the cares that are on our heart, may we put those at your feet. Lord God, move me out of the way, and may it be you who does your work. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Seeking the Lord with an understanding of His sovereignty is essential to growing in unity and preparing for the Spirit-empowered work of His church. Seeking the Lord with an understanding of His sovereignty is essential to growing in unity and preparing for the Spirit-empowered work of His church. The truth is, is it is a unity work of His church. That what Christ is calling his church to is a unity work. A work that is unified in him. In our culture today, we we have lots of different meanings. We hear this word sovereignty. And for some, it conjures up all kinds of different things. For some, it's uh, a kingdom or a kingship. For others, uh, it's a free nation. We hear that all the time. We hear that specifically as it relates in our own country to, um, to reservations, to Native American reservations, where they're talking about being a sovereign land, an independent nation, a rule unto itself. And then others, we've heard that word before, but we really have no idea what it means. It's a word that I think often is overused without explanation within Christ's church. It's a nice word that we kind of wrap things up with. Well, we got to trust in God's sovereignty, right? Okay, well, I'm struggling here. What does that exactly mean, right? The sovereignty of God was never intended to be viewed from a cultural perspective. The sovereignty of God was to be viewed from a spiritual perspective. It was to be actually informed by God himself, and it was to bring comfort and confidence in all things. It was to recognize that God was so, ver- so sovereign over all things and that his nature is being described through this word as the ruler over all things. But this ruler is not just a, a, a stiff-handed ruler that's looking to exasperate and exploit his people, but rather he's a benevolent ruler that's come to redeem his people. And that in his sovereignty, in his rulership, that he has a plan over all things. And he has a purpose for all things. And all those things are working together for good according what to who? According to what? What's that? His purpose, right? This is the, the plan that God has. He's working it out for good. 
for those that love him. It's not that he doesn't have a plan for those who don't love him. That plan is clear. But he's working it out for good for those that love him. See, what happens in this passage is that these disciples, these apostles, have just witnessed the ascension of Jesus. Jesus has come. He's died and he's risen again. And he's with the disciples for 40 days. After those 40 days, he ascends into heaven. The disciples are present for that ascension. And as he's going into heaven, they watch and they stare. And if you recall, if you were here last week or looking at verse 10 and 11, there were two angels that were coming to them and they asked them, why do you stare? He's going to return the same way that he came or that he went. That there's to be a confidence and a hope. Now these apostles were earlier told in verse 4 to wait for the promise of the Father. They were to wait. Jesus had already told them to wait in Jerusalem. Because I'm sending my promised Holy Spirit to you. That tension that exists there, right? That the apostles are being told to wait and then Jesus ascends into heaven and leaves. And Jerusalem being a place of persecution and torment for the followers of Christ. Now, notice what they do. Verse 12 tells us this. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. We don't need to read anything more into that Sabbath day journey except for the fact that it's saying Jerusalem was close by. Jews were allotted to take so many steps on the Sabbath day. And if they took more than those steps by rabbinic law, they were violating the law. What he was saying here is Jerusalem was near. And so Jesus ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And then the the apostles leave and they go to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was nearby. And when they enter, it says, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. The remaining 11 apostles are all present, go up to this room in Jerusalem. They're immediately obedient to God. They're immediately obedient to Christ's word. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus has left, and I want you to think about this in context to our own lives. As children, often when we're asked to do something by our parents, if you recall back if you're a child or if you can recall back to when you're a child, your parents ask you to do something, and your first response is usually, wait, right? One minute. Give me a second, right? we're a people who are kind of curious. We've been given direction, but if we're going to pass by it, we might as well check it out as we go along, right? Go straight home from school. But in between school and home is a 7-Eleven. So I might as well check out the 7-Eleven on my way home, right? The apostles don't do that. The apostles were given an instruction Go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Why? Because they were anticipating the coming Spirit. They didn't know what day that was going to necessarily occur. He was promised as coming. 
And so he comes. They come into Jerusalem. They don't delay. Isn't that true sometimes of our own walk with Christ? We want to know what the benefit is before we actually do it. Otherwise, we're going to stop along the way. God, I had no idea there was urgency to this. Right? I had no idea that you were to go and walk in this with urgency. The Lord's looking at us and saying, listen, I gave you an instruction. Walk in it. Yeah, but I don't think you really meant flee immorality, did you? Did you really mean that we're to flee idolatry? I mean, it wasn't like I was lingering too long. It was just along the way. The apostles understood that when Jesus was instructing them, that they had seen the power of the resurrection and they had watched him ascend and their immediate response was to walk in obedience. And they walk in obedience and they come together to Jerusalem, this place where they are experiencing tremendous persecution and their lives are in danger and they go anyway. Why? Because they have experienced the power of the resurrected Christ. And so... Rather than going their own way in disobedience to Christ, they honor him with their lives. What we see is that the natural response to experiencing the power of the resurrected Christ and experiencing the fulfillment of his promise is a life of worship. It's a life of worship. Even in the face of danger. And so they return to Jerusalem to wait for the promised spirit. Now, notice how they spend their time waiting on God's work. They don't sit down and walk with mindless activity. They don't complain. They don't grumble. They don't sleep. They pray. Now, we see this as well in the Garden of Eden when Jesus is in the garden and he turns to his disciples and he says to them, Pray. Now, you can imagine in that moment, they understand, they have no idea that he's going to be taken that night, but they know that Jesus is under stress and duress. And what does he do? He tells them to pray. Now, Jesus goes off and he prays. And after praying, he comes back and he finds them asleep. Now, this is where the disciples get knocked all the time. But Luke gives us an understanding of what is happening there. The reality is is that the disciples are actually not sleeping because they just want to be disobedient to God. But it says that they slept in their sorrow. And Luke, they were absolutely overwhelmed in sorrow. And so they chose to sleep instead of pray. And what Jesus was telling them and why he comes back and rebukes them is, listen, this is not the time to sleep when you're overwhelmed in sorrow. The time is to pray. We don't know how the disciples immediately felt. We know that they probably felt hopeful, but in the same way that we feel hopeful when somebody dies who knows Jesus Christ and he goes to heaven, we can still experience hope that they are with Christ and joy that they are with Christ and yet grieve the loss of their presence. I imagine that that's how the apostles felt. They were hopeful and yet they grieved the earthly relationship loss that they had with Christ. Where do they go? Well, unlike before where they fell asleep, they actually go to prayer. But there's something unique about this. 
It says in verse 14, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The key word here is one accord, and it literally means to be of one mind or of mutual consent. In Romans 15, it speaks of this idea of being of one accord. And this is what it says, Romans 15, verses 4 through 7. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now listen to this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why are they of one accord? Because of Jesus. Their unity is together in Christ. Their unity, the very thing that's holding them together is Christ. And they're unified. And Romans tells us that that unity is one of endurance. So what we actually see here is that as they're waiting, they're praying. And they're praying in preparation for the coming work of the Holy Spirit. What we really see here is is how the church walks in a place of unity as it prepares to do the work of the Spirit. So what we have then are kind of five essentials to preparing for the Spirit's work within Christ's church in unity. The first is this, it's faithful prayer. Now notice this, faithful prayer, individually and corporately. In fact, this passage stresses the corporate nature It starts with a prayerful heart, but then they come together and they pray together of one accord, one mind, devoting themselves to prayer. We underestimate the power of prayer, I believe. I believe that often as conservative Christians, as conservative people, with an understanding of God's sovereignty, we often put prayer on the back burner. And yet the very place the disciples go to, that the apostles go to, following the resurrection is to a place of prayer. The very place that they go as they're doing the work in Acts 6 is to be devoted to prayer. In the early church, the church is being established in Acts 2. They once again come and are devoted to prayer. And in the garden prior to Jesus' death, what was Jesus calling for them to do? Pray. Pray. Matthew 18, 19 through 20 says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them or among you. The truth is, is that when we pray together, There's something about that experience in which, while God is already present through his spirit, that it says that his presence is among us. His presence is with us. In essence, it is the way that we draw near to God as a body. That through prayer, we are drawing near together in prayer to God. See, God draws us to himself and then, we also draw near to God. 
Corporate prayer has a power that we don't fully understand. Except what we know is that when we pray together and seek the mind of the Lord together, the Lord's presence is real and known. And it's revealed. It's interesting to me, we hear these little quippy sayings. A couple that prays together stays together. Now, I think that's a little too simple. But statistics bear out some things regarding couples that pray together. Couples who pray together are also probably walking in some other things together that are strengthening and building their marriage. So the statement is probably a little too simple. But the truth is, is that we love that little quippy saying. But if we were to actually really understand and believe that saying, then the same saying would apply that churches that pray together stay together. That's the truth. The truth is is that our prayer together builds unity with one another because we are seeking the heart of the Lord together. And God is responding together. There is a unity as we seek the Lord together. As the church is preparing for his work, the church is to be a ministry that is devoted to prayer. I wonder how many of us actually get together and pray with other believers. Most of us are fairly independent in our prayer lives. We pray by ourselves. If we're married, we might pray with our spouse. But how often do we regularly get together and pray with another believer in the body of Christ or another two or three believers in the body of Christ who we're not related to? That actually is an indictment against Christ's church. It is. Because we're wondering where the power of the Spirit has gone and the very thing that we are drawing near to is the very thing that we're not drawing near to because we're not seeking Him together. If we want to prepare for the work of the ministry in unity, we need to be a body that is praying together. It doesn't mean that every service or that you have every prayer meeting. It means though that the body, the, the people who are Christ's church are coming together and seeking the Lord together on his behalf. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, they had a new work before them, a great work. And before they entered upon it, they were instant in prayer to God for his presence with them. Before they were first sent forth, Christ spent time in prayer for them. And now they spent time in prayer for themselves. They were waiting for the descent of the Spirit upon them and therefore abounded thus in prayer. When we're desiring a work of God, are we committed to praying together? And the truth is, as Christ's church, we should constantly be desiring the work of the Spirit. Which means that we should be a body that is praying unceasingly. Second, essential here, is submitting to Christ and his plan for our lives. Submitting to Christ and his plan for our lives. Look at verse 15. It says this. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Jesus. 
For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. God used Judas. God used Judas. The question was, was Judas submitted to Christ? Was he submitted to the plan? See, God has a plan. And the question is, are we submitting ourselves to Christ and his plan, or are we seeking after our own satisfaction outside of him and his plan? What the real question is, are you submitted to Christ's lordship? If we're going to maintain unity as Christ's church, we have to recognize that God is going to use us one way or another. One way or another, he's going to use us to fulfill his purpose. Do I want to be the side of his blessing or the side of his judgment? Luke is kind of interesting here. Remember that Luke here is a physician, he's a doctor. So he gets super description, descriptive about the body here. It's a much more detailed account. He talks about the spilling of the bowels. Now Luke has some other things that are quite interesting. If you notice in his writing, and this is what I love about the scriptures, because as we see it, the scriptures being inspired by God, that as they're writing, we see the little nuances of their own personality that God uses as he writes. Luke draws out this physical portion of his body being spilled out, and there's a very specific reason you remember that in the gospel account when it spoke of Jesus healing the hemophiliac woman who comes and touches his coat, Luke is the only one that mentions that, he never went, that she never went and saw a physician. Kind of interesting, huh? In this passage, Luke is descriptive about the bowels. But the important part about that is in this culture, in the Jewish culture, the spilling of the bowels, the deboweling of a person was the punishment for a traitor. It's an important thing, isn't it? What he's saying is Judas was a betrayer. Make no bones about it. And God himself was clear to make that known. That his own bowels spilled. They left. The truth is this. David knew what it was like to be betrayed. The question was who are you going to submit to? See, Judas had been in the presence of Jesus. He had seen the apostles work. He had sat in the gathering. In fact, he was with Jesus during the Last Supper, and yet he has no inheritance to the kingdom of God because he was not submitted to Christ. It doesn't matter if we are present today, this Sunday morning, and it doesn't matter if we're sitting in another church someplace else, and it doesn't matter if we have heard the gospel 120 times. If I have not submitted my life to Jesus Christ, I have no inheritance with Jesus. I have no inheritance with him. Judas saw every work of Jesus. He knew who Jesus was in the sense of what he had done. He had watched the miracles being expressed, and he had even done miracles in his name. 
and yet he refused to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we're going to walk in unity with one another and prepare for his work, we have to be a people who are submitted to him and his plan. See, it's easy sometimes to say, yeah, I've given Jesus my life, but have you given him your plans? Have you said, you have everything, every desire of mine, everything that's needed, have I given that to him? Matthew Henry said, what will it avail us to be added to the number of Christians if we partake not of the spirit and the nature of Christians? Judas is having obtained part of this ministry was but an aggravation of his sin and ruin, as it will be of theirs who prophesied in Christ's name and yet were workers of iniquity or sin. Matthew 7, 21, and I want to encourage you to write this passage down. Matthew 7, 21 says this. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The reality is, is that our life will reflect our expression. If we have verbally said we are submitting to the Lord and surrendering to his lordship in our life, we've repented and believed on Jesus, does our life reflect that? Are we willing to say that God has a plan that's different than my plans and no matter how hard it's going to be, I am going to walk in God's plans. If it means that I have to be a spouse in a home loving God while my spouse, my spouse chooses not to walk with Christ, it means that I stand firm and bold in that faith. If it means that I'm a child in my home where I have unbelieving parents, it means that I stand bold in my faith knowing that God has a better plan. That God will work this out. He's not saying he'll remove the difficulties of the situation, but he's saying, listen, if you continue in your way, if you choose simply not to walk in my surrender because you think that you'll be satisfied in another way. See what happened to Judas here? He actually went and got money believing that that money would satisfy. I think what happens so often is we have this false sense of peace and we think that that peace will satisfy, but it never satisfies if it's grounded in the word or things other than Christ. If Christ says, come to me, all those who are heavy burdened or heavy laden, he's saying, come to him. What he's saying is, those of us that don't know exactly what to do, when to do it, or how to do it, and we're, we're not sure that it's even going to be worth it, he's saying, come to me and rest in me. And we begin to trust that we can be the light that God has created us to be, to fulfill his purpose, not in our power, but in the Spirit's power. The third thing we see in verse 21, obedience to God, obedience to God. Notice what it says here in Acts chapter 1, starting in in verse 21. He says this, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection, goes on, and it says this, And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. Listen, they didn't go off emotion who they thought ought to be it. They were given a standard. That standard was laid out clearly for an apostle, one that had been a witness of the resurrection and a witness of his ascension. 
but even more so one that had been present at the beginning of the ministry. It's interesting here that there are others, huh, that actually have seen Jesus and known Jesus from the time of his ministry. We tend to just look at the 12. But Peter's reminding him there were others present from the beginning of his ministry to the end of it. That's exciting. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How many times is unity divided because emotions get in the way? We could even say that within our own homes, could we not? That what is true often of the home is true of the church. When our emotions get tied to things, when there is no grounded standard of God's truth, disunity ensues. We're to be obedient to God. Even if we think that we know better than God. Because aren't there times when we believe that we know better than God? I mean, we wouldn't say that, but our, our lives do, right? Well, I know this is the right way, but God, this is more fulfilling right now, right? It could be as simple as, hey, I've already had three pieces of cheesecake. I shouldn't eat this fourth one, right? I love cheesecake. I don't know. But the truth is this, that within his church, unity will be disrupted and torn apart if we aren't obedient to God. I was talking with a person recently, and they were looking for a, a new pastor. It was a, a family member. They were searching for going through and searching this. And one of the things that was really unique was the number of churches that truly, who are preaching the word of, or the gospel, but are really moving away from the word of God in how they counsel one another, how they lead one another. And as we were talking around uh, this meal and we were sharing about this, one of the things that came up was they kept asking me questions. And I said, well, I, this is what the word of God says. Like, we kept going back to these verses. And so one of them stopped me and looked at her spouse and she said, uh, I think whatever we do, whoever we find, needs to be a person that just is grounded in the word. Right, right. And we find that kind of interesting and it's almost comical, but it's true because what happens is we, we land on the gospel and we say, gosh, yes, we understand that God has called us to repent and believe on Jesus and the other stuff goes by the wayside. I've actually sat in church meetings in the course of 25 years of ministry that in that time frame have actually sat in a meeting or two where I've listened to people who are in leadership that say, I know I know what God's word says, but this is how the real word works. We have to be a church that's committed to obedience to God. And we have to be a people who have decided to be obedient to God in his strength. Because the truth is, is we can decide all we want to be obedient to God, but if it's done in our own strength, it will never happen. Ian Thomas speaks of the fact that what ends up happening for most believers is we come to Jesus Christ and we desire to enter the promised land with Christ. And rather than entering the promised land through Christ, we take the old ways that we wandered with and wandered around the wilderness with, and we try to enter the promised land through those same exact ways. And he says that's where you get wearied believers. Believers that are not experiencing the power of the Spirit. Because we're claiming Christ, but we're trying to make it happen in our own strength. David Guzik puts it this way, he says, of course, even if we do sense a, spiritual, a special guidance from the Holy Spirit, we still have God's voice permanently established in his word. 
any perceived guidance from the Holy Spirit will never disobey God's written word to us. Do we have an active Holy Spirit? Yes, we do. Do we have a spirit that still prompts and leads? Yes, we do. But it will never be in disobedience to God's word. It'll be confirmed in his word. The fourth thing is seeking God's will in all decisions. Seeking God's will in all decisions. See, God is the one who knows the hearts of men. He sees the deeper things, and it must be his will that we desire. Proverbs 19.21, and I want to encourage you to write that passage down. Proverbs 19.21 says something unique, and I, I just love the way that it's put here. It says this, Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So we can have wonderful intentions and be even people who are walking with the Lord, but unless we submit those plans, we, unless we seek His will, those plans are destined to fail. Over the last year, I think probably Ben and Kelly and I have heard from others many different times, gosh, you guys are slow. My hope is that what people experience in time is not that we're slow, but that we are committed to seeking God's will and letting him establish the timing for his work. Even in the small things, if we're going to have unity as a body, we have to be committed to seeking the Lord's will in all things. See, that is so often where we get off track. Is it not that when we just start beginning to go, well, I think, I, 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 I think, I mean, I don't know, right? Remember years ago being in a meeting, dealing with the selection of a new pastor. There's a lot of things wrong with the process, the way we go about selecting pastors, Truthfully. It's not actually really scriptural. But I remember sitting in a meeting as this pastor was being selected and evaluated. And it was interesting. Half the room was for this individual and half the room was against this individual. And both sides felt very strongly. They were completely and utterly divided. I had no role in there except to provide counsel and I remember an individual looking and saying, what do we do? And I remember asking him, what's the only thing we can do? Is pray. And we took the next 50 minutes and prayed together. Now I'll tell you, for a group of people who are efficiently minded, 50 minutes of prayer does not seem like a wise use of time. But in Christ's economy it is. Because it is seeking him together, and it's seeking his presence. And what was amazing was, after praying for that 50 minutes, every single person, and I'm not exaggerating this, every single person was in unity, that this person was not the right fit. Only God can change hearts when we seek him. But we have to be committed to seeking his will. 
We have to be committed to seeking his will. I'll add with that, God changed my heart. Because in that moment, I too thought that this individual might be a good one. And as we took that 50 minutes, God changed each of our hearts. The final thing here. It says here that after they sought the Lord because the Lord knew the hearts of all. It says that they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven of the apostles. I'm not sure that I would recommend this same way of discerning God's will. Okay? Remember the Holy Spirit had yet to come. But what is true And the same truth applies, is that now that we do have the Holy Spirit, we're told to then make those decisions in the power and wisdom of the Spirit. But here is the key. If we make decisions in the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the same truth applies. And that truth is we have to trust in God's sufficiency. We have to trust in God's, I'm sorry, in God's sovereignty. If I believe that God is truly sovereign then I can have confidence that he's working out his plan for good for those that love him. And that means that I am free to let go instead of hold control over the things that I want to hold tight of and release them to the Lord and allow God's sovereignty to be at work. And so when I walk in the power of the Spirit and discern his wisdom in that, then I trust in his sovereignty, that he has a plan. And even if I think it's not going to go well, I know that he's still going to work it out for his good. Amazing part of that in this passage is they cast these lots. It's the Old Testament way of determining that truth. And so they pray and ask God to show them who they've decided. And the casting of the lots we know from First Chronicle was not this like taking of straws, right? They didn't break sticks and say, you pull one, you pull one, you pull one, you pull one. They didn't cast lots by taking a vote and handing over paper. They actually took lots. What it literally means is that they were given lots, meaning that both Matthias and Joseph, or Sabbath was actually given these rocks that were allotted theirs. They were placed into a a bin or a jar, and they were shaken. And whatever rock fell out was the lot that fell out and told of the one that was going to serve as the apostle. That's how the lot was cast. It was the Old Testament way that had been prescribed. And the truth is here is that the apostles took this decision to add to their number another one of the apostles because why? They did it because they trusted in his sovereignty. They believed that God would work out his will as they sought him. And see, there's the confidence that we have. As we seek him with a right heart, we have the confidence to trust in his sovereignty, even when we don't understand it and even when we don't agree with it. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says this. And I want to encourage you to write this one passage down as well. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. 
It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other God. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. As hard as we try, we can't thwart God's plans. And it's in God's grace and in the strength of the power of his spirit that he fulfills his will through our lives. Is it not true that we are given the blessing of being a part of his purpose, declaring his truth that for all those who repent and believe on Christ, that they too might experience the salvation of Jesus. But more than that, that they might inherit the Holy Spirit and walk in his power, living as a powerful people, reflecting the very glory of God that they serve. Amen? Amen. 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 Lord God, may we be a people who are committed to preparing for your work in unity. May we be a church that's committed to unity through your spirit. Father, may we be a church that is committed to walking in prayer, to being submitted to you, to living in obedience to your word. May we be a people as well who are seeking your will in all of our decisions. And may we be a people who trust in your sovereignty, knowing that your plan, your purpose, your power, and that as ruler over all things, you will work out those things according to your good for those that love you. May we walk in confidence and comfort and unity of the Spirit. And may your spirit be the one who brings satisfaction to the soul, not the world. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.